for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Nance. So, and as a reminder us that the series we're doing uh, on Advent this year is focused on not trying to forget 
that Advent is not the last time we will hear from Jesus. And even as we look forward to celebrating Christmas and this event in the Church of the Calendar, we don't want to stop in our understanding of what it means to welcome the arrival of Christ at his birth while looking forward to it in the future. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is draw that thread. I'm not going to abandon the fact that Christ was born, so we just celebrate the future. But let's draw the thread from that event to Christ coming back. And I think it's pretty, fairly easy to do that in some ways. I must admit, though, I was a little bit confused when Ann sent me these texts. You, you listened. I didn't put the Daniel one in the bulletin on purpose on my outline because I wanted you to have to listen to it. And, and figure it out on your own. But I'll talk about that later. But I got that text, and I'm like, this is my Advent text? This is, what is this? Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit. The first Thessalonian one's a little bit easier to deal with because there's some stuff in there that's a little more accessible. But um, again, um, we're preaching on this and building t- the sermon around these texts because I realize that my own reaction to Christmas always contains, and this might be my personality, some of you who know me, um, but both joyful and a sense of some, something ominous, something unfinished. Um, this is not a child being born without a lot of grief in his life to come. This is a child born to see strife. A lot of the carols that we sing <clears throat> contain both of those elements. You know, we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and then we sing, Mild He Lays His Glory By. Uh, the, the phrase mild he lays seems a little bit um, soft way of putting it. Lo, how arose there blooming. She bore to men a savior. It was a child, but it was a savior. Savior, right away, right in that word, implies there's something more is going to happen in this kid's life than we are aware of. So, so even as we think about Christmas, I know it's not just me, it's a lot of us, we think about this is, has a bit of an ominous tone. This is not going to be an easy life this child is being born into. So in my own perspective, um, it took that element on and sort of filled it out a little bit when you talk about prophecy. I want us to remember that we needed to hear the word fear not because something awesome, awesome was about to happen. Um, Nostalgia is, isn't bad by itself. It's good to look back and think about the way things were and reminisce. We do that a lot when we get together as families, right? Um, and um, I just had my grandson, Grayson, here. He's in his first year at Wheaton. Um, and I went to Wheaton, and my daughter went to Wheaton, so you know I got to reminisce about going to Wheaton. Of course, when I went to Wheaton, they didn't have an omelet bar in the morning. So he has an omelet bar in the morning in the dining room that's open till 9 o'clock at night, at which point he's still eating ice cream and, and acting the way I would have acted if I had that kind of um, cuisine available to me. Um, but we enjoy that nostalgia of looking back. So it's not to go away from that. But pure nostalgia has some dangers. Um, and we, we sort of aware of them. We have carols whose lyrics we often overlook. Um, decorations, preparation, all the common stuff, gifts, all that stuff we get involved in. But Christmas is just a flat-out good feeling sometimes. There's a sense of hopefulness and and a relief that is great, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying that moment. 
especially in the beginning of winter. You know, good tidings are great joy. Particularly, as Ange mentioned, we live in a world that offers so little hope, so much brokenness. The problem is when those feelings overwhelm everything else in terms of the birth and the historicity of it. It just struck me how often I forget that this actually happened. I'm going to blame part of that on, if you could put up that first picture, not as, with the lights off, you can see it. So this is just a, a, um, I'm only going to say this once. I'm showing this because my wife and I were there. We went over to Europe to celebrate an anniversary. I'm not saying which one because it will show you exactly how old we are. And this is the inside of um, Saint-Chapelle in France. It's a chapel that was built in the 13th century, I believe. Um, I, I show it because when, I, when we went around in Europe, I love going inside churches. I, it's, you know, it's a little bit different than the atmosphere inside here. <laughs> I mean, I like the United Nations theme. It's fine. But it ain't stained glass. And it does not inspire you. At least it doesn't inspire me when I come in here. Uh, what inspires me is all of you, and that's the church. Great. But there's a, you know, there's, there is some benefit to being confronted with the historicity of our beliefs. They weren't, you know, this is all kinds of things you could complain about, about the chapels and the, and the churches that were built. But when you walk into them, it's centuries and centuries of people saying it's important for us to worship and to know that this happened. And, and so there's a veneration of Christ, which might be over the top for some, but it's, it's useful, I think, in reminding us that this happened, this thing we're celebrating. This actually happened. It took place historic in history. Uh, you can turn the lights back on and you can... Those, those stained glass windows are enormous, by the way. You can't hardly see to the top of them. And what they do when you go around the room is they have a complete history of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, and so it's a really interesting um, place to stand inside of. It's overwhelming. But, uh, but again, it's, it's just that sense that we, we, we might have lost the history of this moment. The second thing we can lose is not just the history of it, it happened, but the sort of the significance of it, that it's much bigger than just this single thing happening. There's a lot behind it, in front of it, coming. Uh, I am a, a Messiah addict. That's the song, you know, Handel, Messiah. I have a ticket already to see it this year. I've seen it so many times. I've listened to it so many times and watched it performed. Um, but I still love listening to it. It's, if you listen to it, it's amazing how long Handel takes to get to the, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He precedes that with a lot of other texts, one of which is from Malachi, and that one starts, but who can endure the day of his coming? How many people are just hearing that tune in their heads? I gotta, all right, it's just me, okay. I can understand that. Who can stand when he appears, Malachi says, who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then Isaiah 40, and Handel goes on to Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough, rough ground 
shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is all in anticipation of the birth. It's, you know, if you think about the richness of that event, it's rich because of the texts that precede it and the texts that follow it. Only after those passages with these weighty messages of his birth and, and what it, what it um, brings does Handel introduce the birth from Isaiah, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, you all know this text, I hope, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. We have the words from the song in the bleak midwinter. You can imagine, that's one of my favorites. Um, but it says, heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Again, just amazing texts about this. It's not just, um, it's ominous for a lot of reasons, but it's also filled with all this meaning before and after it. This is what um, pure nostalgia what might miss, that it's an historic event, and it's, and it's an event that has changed and will change everything. It's a light coming into the world, and, and the depth of that event is not shallow. It brings great meaning to things. And then my second point was prophecy and advent, the sequel. Um, I thought that was clever, but... Um, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. It's clear from those passages we read that the government will be upon his shoulders and there's a future role that Christ is going to play in history. It's not stopped at the death and the resurrection. It's going to come again. There is a second advent. There will be no end to this government. The thing everybody tries to figure out is when will it happen and what will it look like? It's a subject of um, many theologians have worked on this one, post, pre, ah, whatever mill you happen to fall into, whatever eschatology you hold on to. Your view of the rapture, some of the people in this section obviously are subject to that, according to Ange. Um, and, and, and I'll just share my approach with this, this uh, sort of tricky topic of, of the future and what it will look like and where it will come. Our first text Nancy read this morning was from the book of Daniel. It's an amazing prophetic word, and there's a lot of math in it. It's a difficult one, and it's generated a lot, of, a fair amount of discussion and controversy. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and lays out a timeline for the arrival of an anointed one. <clears throat> and then he actually sort of anticipates the years of his ministry and service. That's where the the um, figuring out what the seven means, and everybody sort of agrees it means years. And so, you know, if you start it at the right point, you can carry it forward and finish it exactly when Christ ministered and, and when he was taken up into heaven. You can do all kinds of things with numbers, right, to make them come out the way you want to come out. I'm not saying anybody's wrong or right about that. Don't get me in trouble with anybody who knows more than I do about this. But it's talking about Jerusalem as well. 
um, it'll be rebuilt, and then things won't be going well, and then it'll get worse. So what is it talking about? Flood, wars, desolations will come until the time when the anointed one will put it to an end. So is that his birth, or is that his second coming? You know what? I'm not so sure that's the important thing. Um, because Isaiah is in some ways about both. And a lot of these prophetic sects are about both. The advent now and the sequel, the second advent. We, we, we um, come at these texts from so many different angles and try to figure it out. And, and as I was thinking about this, when I, again, we were away on vacation and we were in um, Amsterdam. You see, when you go to a lot of fancy places, you've got to get them straight in your head. Um, but we were in Amsterdam, and I was actually thinking about this text and about this whole Jesus coming again. I, the first thing I saw when I stepped in the museum was this huge triptych, three-part paneled thing, about probably about 15 feet high in front of me, and it was on the judgment of Christ when he returns. It had this picture of the end of the world, on one side, on the, one of the three panels, were all the dead people, all the people who had been condemned to hell, and they were moaning and groaning and, and, and behaving as you would if you ended up condemned to hell. And then you have Christ sort of seated on, literally seated on a rainbow, and above him they actually had a picture of God uh, at the very top. And then on the other side, then you had all the righteous people who were on their way to heaven. So you, you had this picture of this sort of imaginary landscape of what it's going to look like when Christ comes back. A more contemporary example, if you could put that next picture up. See how many people remember this. It's a little fuzzy there. How many people saw this movie, A Thief in the Night? It had become such a part of discussion and culture I was growing up in that I was absolutely certain I had seen it. Um, then I realized I hadn't seen it. I just talked about it so much I thought I did. So I actually watched most of it online. It's pretty accessible on YouTube. Uh, and, and there are some amazing scenes in it. But the one I, I remember the most was when the, when the woman first wakes up in the morning and the radio's on. It's like, it sort of reminded me of Groundhog Day, except they weren't singing whatever song that was on Groundhog Day. Instead, it was a radio announcer, announcer announcing that millions of people had disappeared overnight. And, of course, this person's in bed going, hey, I'm still here. This cannot be good. So she yells out the name of, um, I believe it's her father, and all she hears is his razor in the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom, and the razor is rattling around in the sink because he obviously was raptured and she wasn't. The movie goes on to um, inspire about as much fear as you could in a person, especially a young adult. And I suppose the object was to drive them to Christ. It's not actually the love initiative here. It's a, it's a slightly different take on how do you get somebody to believe the gospel. Um, and I don't mean to ridicule it other than I don't like it. Um, but, <laughs> but I don't think it's the message, it's the intent of prophecy, to scare people into the kingdom. I don't think that's the intent of prophecy in either Daniel's case or in the case of a thief in the night, which, you know, somebody in good conscience thought this was a way to get the gospel of people, it probably was the reason some people came to Christ. You know, and then maybe they got their theology straightened out later. But that's just my opinion. Because we know Jesus himself spoke of things to come. 
when he talks to his disciples. You can t- oh, good. Um, <laughs> regarding the temple, because he just said this to them. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign they're about to take place? And what does Jesus say? Watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And then he mentions other things that will happen. Nations will be in anguish and perplexed at the roaring of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming in the world. Some of us already feel that way about what's coming in the world. But then he says this, stand up when these things begin to happen and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Two messages, do not be frightened and your redemption is drawing near. To me, that's sort of the issue with the prophetic word. Is Is it mean that eventually there's going to be this annihilation or will there be redemption? I don't know what that's going to look like or how... God chooses to restore his creation. But my sense from scripture and from the messages of Jesus himself are that he's going to redeem things. He's going to redeem things. That's his purpose. His purpose is to redeem them. What will that look like? When will it happen? These are all the questions I would love to have answers to, but I don't. And I probably won't for a long time. But he promises that we will see him again. He promises us that he will come back. The promise from Isaiah is that he will be the governor, the ruler forever, and a kingdom that will be much different from the one we're currently seeing. Maya Angelou has written a poem, an Advent poem, that um, if you just forget that it's about Advent, it could be an anticipation of either of the returns of Christ, either the one when he was born, the coming of Christ, or the Advent, the coming of Christ in the future. She says, And to this climate of fear and apprehension, Christmas enters, streaming lights of joy, ringing bells of hope, and singing carols of forgiveness, high upon the bright air. The world is encouraged to come away from rancor. And even the Bible itself ends on that note, right? The Bible ends with this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with God's people. That's the end of the Bible, anticipating this coming of Christ. So there's, I said there's this thread that runs from the manger to the crucifixion to the resurrection to the final redemption. And I think it's made up of the same kind of anticipation that we have about Advent. We all have about the second coming of Christ because this is not the way we want things to end. We, We want to see justice, right? We want to see compassion. We want to see love trump everything else. And we have that hope it will happen. And that hope is promised to us in the book of Isaiah and in 1 Thessalonians and other places in Scripture. That hope is not empty. No more than the birth of Christ was an empty thing for us. It was filled with those promises when it came.
So we come back to the manger, in a way. That's sort of where we, you know, at the end of the day, we come back to the manger. And in it, I think we see the fulfillment of the promise of the child savior. And we see that he will keep that promise of future redemption with a world that seems so hopeless and broken. We see both promises kept. And so, but how, the question you can ask is, how do we live in the meanwhile? What do we do between now and then? Because in a way, what we're asking, right, in Advent, is that Jesus Christ wouldn't just come back then, and we just don't want to sit around and wait for him to come tomorrow. We want him to come today, this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> when, the first night, when Svieta went into the hospital, and I called um, Eric to, to pray with him, to talk to him, to try to pray on the phone, uh, I, I could not get words out hardly. I just couldn't get them out. And at the end, the only thing I remember saying from that whole thing is, God, give us a break. Come. Do something. And isn't that what we're all asking for almost every day? Show up in my life. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. It's not just come, let's celebrate Christmas, then we'll sit around and wait for the second one. It's come and come tomorrow and come the day after Christmas and come New Year's Day when I'm depressed because I just broke all of the things I thought I would do in the new year in about a half an hour. Come for those occasions. Make a difference. At the micro level, I, I, as, as is my custom, I sat in Starbucks longer than usual today because I had to go to the airport. But I sat there and worked on the sermon and in walked somebody I knew from a while back and I just thought, if I go over and talk to that person... It's going to take up my sermon prep time. And then I realized, wait a second. Maybe that's more important than my sermon prep. That's the micro level we all live at, right? We all make those kinds of little decisions. I went over and talked to him. Uh, you know, and, of course, in my picture, he would have needed great help, and I would have helped him out, and I'd come here with an even better. No, you know, it wasn't that way at all. We just reminisced for a while. I went back and worked on my sermon. Um, but still, there's those micro moments in our lives where that, those are the kind of decisions we're making. Those kinds of decisions. We stand in front of a God incarnate, right? Who placed himself in the arms of human parents. God, the person who created all this, this auditorium, that chapel, this world, created all this, he put himself in the arms of human parents. It's bad enough that we think we're parents. Um, but he placed himself in the hands of parents and made himself that vulnerable to us. How, how do we stand in front of that without asking ourselves, what will we do when we turn away? Will we show the kind of love we've been shown? Uh, some of us have to become a little more childlike and let compassion trump reason sometimes. When my uh, grandson was little, the one I just took back to the airport this morning, he, he, was, he could not walk by a person in the street begging without asking us to give him money so he could help them. Now, I could have sat down and explained that, you know, that's not always the best thing to do, Grayson. You know, that's not, a, you know, you don't know what they're going to use that money for. That's my, you know, uh, you know all the warnings kick in. Um, but all he knew, person destitute, on the street, no questions. I'm not going to vet him. I don't have, you know, I'm not going to figure out what he's going to do. I just, he's just had his heart. And sometimes we need to let that 
um, rule a little bit more than we do. And I've seen that actually mature in him to the place where he still understands that he is in a position of, in a lot of ways, privilege because of the way he's grown up and that he has, still has a heart for those things. And, and how quickly we might have forgotten that. As we stand in front of the manger, right? As we stand in the front of the manger, will we let compassion rule? So we're in waiting, right? Between the birth and the resurrection and Jesus coming back. What do we hope to learn from in this period of waiting? As we look at, even as we look at the first one, we see the love of God and the promise that was kept. And we hope that the promise will be kept again. We are, see our helplessness in the, in the light of a very lowly birth, right? We see our own helplessness, not to be disdained, but to actually be appreciated. We witness the freedom of grace in our unearned redemption. This, this child was sent to us and will come back again, not because um, he's seen favor in what we've done, but because he knows that we need him desperately. You know, we sing a song of Deste Fidele's, Go Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, and, and there's this quote from Beekner I put in the bulletin. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. In, in either this Advent or the one to come, um, those of us with our weak faith, with our, with our, on our knees, w- whatever state we're in, we come, oh, come all you faithful, oh, come all you faithful, right? Because it's by grace. It's not a one-time Advent in two ways. One way is that we'll be visited again. The second way is that we need to be visited constantly. We, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, all the time, and we should. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I wanted to um, finish with just this prayer. I did not write this prayer. Someone else did. But we will, I'll pray this for us as a congregation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High, Prince of Peace, be born again into our world. Wherever there is war in this world, wherever there is pain, wherever there is loneliness, wherever there is no hope, come, thou long-expected one, with healing in thy wings. Holy child, whom the shepherds and the kings and the dumb beasts adored, be born again. Wherever there is boredom, wherever there is fear of failure, wherever there is a temptation too strong to resist, wherever there is bitterness of heart, come, thou blessed one, with healing in thy wings. Savior, be born in each of us who raises our face, not knowing fully who he is or who thou art, knowing only that the love is beyond knowing and that no other has the power to make him whole. Come, Lord Jesus, to each who longs for thee, even though he has forgotten thy name. Come quickly. Amen.